0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. We have two guests on this Tartan Talks podcast, and both of them are repeat guests. Joining us first is Chris Wolzinski of CW Golf Architecture. And in the second segment, we chat with Todd Quitno of Loman Quitno Golf Course Architects. And the topic of the podcast is all things bunker projects, bunker renovations, bunker enhancements, bunker restorations, whatever you want to call them. Chris and Todd are very knowledgeable on the subject. But before we get going with them, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board and we're glad that Chris and Todd both were able to take the time to join us. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the Tartan Talks podcast again. I know we had a great episode a few years ago with you. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you, and this is before we get to bunkers and the topic of this episode, is uh, recently details about the new course you are designing for Coulter Homes in southeast Florida has been re- released. Uh, congrats on landing that project. And I was just looking at the plans, and I noticed that there's a ribbon T system in there. For our listeners that aren't familiar with the concept, explain what a ribbon T system is and how will that affect maintenance, playability, and strategy?
1: Yeah, thanks, Guy. It's great to be here again. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity. So, yeah, the Ribbon Tee, I don't think this is something that I, you know, it's not my original idea because other architects have done it and I've seen it in other places. Uh, The very first time I ever did it was at um, Azario, Esplanade Azario in Lakewood Ranch. And, yes, the the new golf course, Astro Creek, has the same concept plan. But the Ribbon Tee system, you know, there's kind of a a few benefits I see of it. One, it allows a little bit more flexibility with the tee positions. You know, you don't have one pod per se you have a kind of a long strip of area where you can put the tees so the tees have a little bit more flexibility of floating around um, you can definitely have a multiple t system with the ribbon t system you know the the golf course that we're doing at Astor creek has a five t system with the fifth t being like up in the fairway for the most part the thing that i like about it from a design strategy perspective is that uh, visually i think it's really cool when you stand on the t that ribbon kind of leads your eye right up to the fairway because it's all interconnected you know so so essentially like if you were to visualize it you'd have a fairway that would start you know around the green come back through the lane area and the b1 contiguous you know strip that goes all the way back to the back t so it's all all you know essentially a ribbon i guess but you know visually it looks pretty cool it draws your eye up the hole um we can set up strategy because of the fact that we can have t's at different positions for different you know, golfing skill levels. It um, it's easier to mow than like a traditional pod. You know, we have a separate mower for that that tee top. But for example, if we want with rectangle tees, you know, that's a lot of work to get those tees square and rectangular. Whereas this is just the, you know the fairway mower coming right back down and mowing the same same grass. Um, it is more grass to mow because uh, there's more fairway grass because the tees are all interconnected, um, there's a trade-off for the rough, but, you know, fairway gets mowed a little bit more frequently, so maybe a little bit more mowing, but it does eliminate, like, a specialty type of mower and in one person that's mowing just tees, because, again, that's the entire fairway that just gets pulled right back to the tee system.
0: Well, I'm intrigued to see uh, how it looks, and as somebody who, in his golf course maintenance days, I was the person that, that mowed tees. I, I I love that job, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense, one mower for the tees and fairways. Chris,
1: right? right. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I, I I just love the way it looks when you stand in the the hole. It it really pulls your eye up and draws your eye to the things that we want people to be drawn to, um, versus just kind of floating, you know, out in the out in the periphery.
0: All right. Well, speaking of uh, things that people want to be drawn to, or maybe keep their ball away from bunkers, it's the topic of this podcast. When you are contacted by a potential client about a bunker project. Where do you start as a golf course architect? Where does that plan uh, begin and what goes through your your head in the early stages?
1: Yeah, great question. First and foremost, you know, would be trying to understand our clients' needs, you know, their goals, objectives for the work. And that's really just us listening, you know, just sitting down and talking and listening about, you know, what's broken, what needs to be fixed, again, what their needs are. Um, The golf course budget is really important, like, you know, what is the budget? how are they currently maintaining the bunkers Uh, and then the historical perspective if it's an older golf course you know trying to figure out whether it's photos or or aerial photography how the bunkers have evolved whether the location has changed or the or the style of the bunkers so those are really the first steps is just listening understanding what our clients needs are you know the budget and then trying to figure out like historically like how how the bunkers have changed and how they've evolved
0: Restore, modernize, or fix. Which philosophy, uh, sparks most of the bunker inquiries you receive from poten- potential clients? What are most of the clubs you deal with looking for?
1: I'd say primarily fixing. Uh, you know, so like, for example, I, the two most recent ones I did, I did the bunkers at, uh, renovation at Blyfield Country Club where they have the, uh, Meyer LPGA Classic. And we were really trying to fix those bunkers first and foremost. That's, that's why, you know, that's why we started the, the job. I guess what I found in my career is that it's really hard to convince people to change something if it's not broken. You know, I could say you know, this bunker style would look a lot more attractive or aesthetically appealing. You know, if we change the bunker to the style, but it, that's a hard sell because it's an emotional type of thing. Versus if the bunkers are truly broken, if there's a problem with drainage, uh, which is most of the times the problem where the sand is contaminated. It's a lot easier case case study, I guess, to make. For, you know improving those bunkers if they're really broken so but i i'd say it's a combination of restoring and fixing like at blyfield they had rocks in the bunkers um because the entire property was on a, a rock mine you know across the street from active uh, gravel quarry so there was constantly rocks coming up into the bunkers so we wanted to fix that we put it in a, the better billy bunker liner uh into the bunkers to stop the rocks but in while we were doing that, it gave us a chance to restore the bunkers back to the original, more, more of the Langford Moreau type of look. The bunkers before the renovation had flash sand that went up almost to the top of the bunkers and the, and the bunker faces had a lot of noses and type of movement in the faces. So we, we really wanted to go back to more of that steep grass face that had that clean chiseled look, um, but at the same time fixing the problem with the rocks. Um, I've been working for the last year for the city of Dayton, Ohio, they have a golf facility, 36 holes, called Community Golf Course. It's the Hills and Dales courses, 218s uh, two, two for 36 holes. And their bunkers there were were completely broken and that's why they went forward with the project. They just were not draining. The drainage had been compromised uh, throughout the years. And part of it, I think, was, was maintenance. There was a period when the city of Dayton was not putting any money in the golf course when things were really tough. And I think because of that, You know, the bunkers slowly degraded and got worse and worse, but all we're doing there is fixing them. Um, so it's really a combination of the two, uh, you know, modernizing. I guess the, you know, the word modernize, you know, is subjective because there's so many different styles of bunkers. Um, you know, if you wanted to modernize them, I think technology is what we're trying to take advantage of. Like, what's the best way to build a bunker? Um, we used to traditionally use that four inch perforated round pipe in the bunkers. It was perforated, you know, we, we'd encase that in gravel, and then we'd put the bunker sand on top of that. Well, you always had the gravel that would come up into the bunker sand, you know, with the bunker rake that would go around it. And, you know, it was always just a problem. And then, you know, the gravel really creates a, a perched water table, so you'd get wet spots above the drain lines, and because that sand had to become saturated first before it would release into the gravel. Well, nowadays, when I build bunkers, and my projects, we're using a two-inch micro slit pipe, in the in the floor of the bunker for drainage instead of the four-inch pipe, and we're actually encasing that pipe in the same bunker sand that we use throughout the entire bunker. So with that, we don't have gravel, we don't have contamination of gravel, and the sand uh, is releasing that water right down to that pipe. So we're not getting wet spots above the pipe, um, and it's easier to install. That you know it, it, that smaller pipe is you know smaller trench, and it's just um, so I guess when I say modernize. I think it's really trying to take advantage of technology. You know, with better drainage systems, uh, are we can we install a liner in the bunkers, whether it's a you know a concrete type of liner or if it's a felt type of liner, something to help contamination and keep the sand cleaner and, and, and improve drainage. Right.
0: You, you've had a chance to work on a number of golden age golf courses throughout the course of your career. I know a few years ago I had a chance to work on a story about Wanaka country club in New York, which was a Willie Watson, uh, design, but how much variance is there in the bunker style among architects of that era? I know we can do a whole podcast just on uh golden age bunkering, but just how much variance was there from one architect to the next of that era?
1: Quite a bit. And what I, what I found is that, um, you know, except worked on some Ross golf courses as well. It really depended on who the project superintendent or foreman was for Ross or for some of these architects. Because, you know, a lot of these architects in that golden age were built, were building a lot of golf courses. And it was, you know, again, if we think back to 19, the 1920s, you know, the modes of transportation were pretty limited. So it took, it would take a long time to get from, you know, point A to point B. So there was just no way that these architects could be on site and be at all these places at the same time. So they really trusted on a, a foreman it was their kind of eyes and ears on the site. So you get different variances in bunker styles because of that foreman. You know, one foreman may have their aesthetic, you know, that's in philosophy with Ross, for example, or there could be another foreman in a different job site that would have a little bit different view or look on it. Um, so I think that there was a lot of variance. I think the other part factors that caused that variance were um, the site conditions. You know, every site is different. Some sites are sandy, some are clay, some are heavy rock. So I think that dictated, like, the type of bunkers. And then the tool that they had to build those bunkers also was an impact. You know, did they have a beautiful site that they're able to cut the bunkers into the natural landforms, or did they have to manufacture it all with, you know, the scrapes and the horse scrapes, the things that they would use to move that soil around? So those are the variances that I see. We just, They just didn't have the technology that we have today to kind of build it however we want.
0: Let's say a facility or a club is thinking about doing a – Bunker project or already has one on the books. What type of uh, engagement and feedback do you like to see from the superintendent in that part of the process?
1: Yeah, really. The in my mind, the superintendent is the most critical person. We need to be on the same page. Um, and, and when I say on the same page, I mean as far as the the budget, the manpower. You know, for example, like at Blyfield before the renovation the bunker faces were able to be mowed with a, like a sidewinder type of rough mower. And they had a little bit of flash. So when the, it rained, the water would you know, degrade the sand or, or erode it. The new bunkers have a really steep face and they require to be fly mowed. And it's a lot more labor. Um, so my point is that you have to be on the same page with the superintendent making sure that the type of maintenance that's required for the bunker style matches his labor source, his budget, that it can be done, and Colin at at Blyfield was all in on that style because that's what we wanted. But it is it is extra work. He I think he told me it takes seven guys two days to do all the bunkers to fly mow, mow all the faces and then do all the clean up, and so it's a fair amount of work. So I think you know budget, manpower, you know just again being on the same page, agreement, buy in the because the last thing I want to do is to create something that the superintendent's not able to maintain and and I need that superintendent to help sell this internally because I'm you know kind of on the outside he's there every day and we're not on the same page and there's no way he's going to endorse it or believe in it so if we can be all on the same page he's going to really go to bat and you know make sure that it gets sold and that everybody understands the why of what we're doing and uh, you know just creates for a much more successful project
0: uh, so you have the architect and superintendent. Who else needs to be on that team to pull off a successful bunker project? What other groups do you need to have there are pulling in the same direction?
1: Well, like, like I said, the superintendent, um, I think that the owner, having a very committed, supported, supportive, and trusting owner. You know, trust is a huge part of any business, really. But, you know, people can't trust us you know, or constantly second-guessing us, and it's going to be really hard for us to do our work. And, Um, Because, again, we are the experts, so we want the owner to trust us, be supporting us, uh, and having a good architect, somebody that has the ability to understand, like, what these projects are going to cost, putting a good plan together that can be sold to the membership um, with a a cost estimate so that there's complete transparency of what the project is going to cost, and then having a capable contractor, you know, a contractor that has the experience, has the ability to do the job. You know, every project is different. At Wyfield, for example, we um, that it was a fast-paced job. We did that whole project in about four months, and McCurick um, Golf Construction had, I think, 20 to 25 people on site, so we had to make sure we had a contractor that had the, enough manpower to do the job as quickly as we can. For the city of Dayton, it was kind of a slower draw as far as how we did the project so they only had typically you know four to six people out there uh, doing doing the work so that that's really important to match the manpower with the schedule that we have um, and that that's another you know thing that's really important with uh, uh, executing a project is, is the schedule the budget the schedule uh, making sure that everybody understands when we're going to start when we're going to finish and how we're trying to I guess you know move throughout the prop- property
0: how tricky is it to do a cost estimate right now with so many things going on that are beyond the control of the people that work in the golf industry? Uh,
1: it makes us look really bad as architects. It's pretty tough because <laughs> you come up with an estimate and he's you, you know you give it to them. And then we go to bid, and the numbers are you know they're kind of close, but not really. Um, so it's okay. tough right now. Uh, we've always you know recommended a ten percent contingency. Okay. For these projects, you know, for the unknowns and things like this, and you know, so maybe the contingency needs to go up to fifteen percent. Um, but it's it's hard because I I I you know pride myself in being you know having a good estimate and being transparent with my owner about what these projects are going to cost, but. It's hard because things are unpredictable right now. Labor is still a, an issue. Labor, you know, finding labor for people, contractors, and then the costs are all over the place. Uh, drainage pipe is the biggest one that's gone up. Irrigation products, um labor's gone up because housing has gone up and fuel. And so some of it we can kind of forecast, but some of it just continues to change. And we have no idea, like, you know, what this next year will be like. You know, will, will prices go back down to where they were? I doubt it. Why would not anybody lower their prices back down <laughs> but it, it's it's tough you know it's just um again everybody be on the same page and being transparent and you know just communicating uh properly so that people understand these things
0: uh, describe what day one of a project is like and what needs to be in place in terms of supplies and people on site uh right from the start
1: Good good question. You know, I, I touched on it a second ago, but I think, you know, the communication and transparency is so important, you know, whether it's a public golf course or a private golf course, just communicating what we're going to do and then being transparent about that. You know, we're going to have issues, um, and we have to make sure that when we do have issues or setbacks that people are aware of that, what's going on. Um, and I think throughout the project, it's important to continue to have communication and updates and let people know what's going on even like mini tours where you bring people out there and let them see the work that's that's taking place so they can kind of visualize it. So again, it starts with that, that communication transparency, you know, the plan, I talked about that, like a schedule, you know, if we have, you know, we're renovating every bunker on the golf course, we myself and the contractor and the superintendent need to understand what that timeline looks like. How many months is it going to take? What impact is that going to have on the golf course on a day-to-day basis? So we can put together a good plan. We don't do this in every job, but if we can, I'd like to kill all the grass or eradicate all the grass before we start, like around the bunker. It makes it a lot easier to remove that existing turf, you know, if, if we are gonna like, for example, reshape the bunker or change the style, then we're gonna impact an area outside the actual bunker per se. And that's another kinda, you know, point with bunkers is are we renovating them right where they are or are we gonna slightly change their position or change their position altogether? Um, and if so, you know, there's some grass that needs to come out before we get started. And I like to, you know, apply Roundup and, and get that grass nuked a couple times before we actually start. So this makes the removal process a lot easier to do that. And then, and it's, uh, you know, something that we also have to think about is play the golf course. You know, is play going to continue and be maintained or are we going to shut down a golf hole? And I certainly have thoughts on that, but we still have to have a plan, you know, that, that kind of factors in the play in the golf course and how it's going to impact the work that we're doing.
0: Chris, how do you make a bunker architecturally interesting, but still maintainable? How tough is that? Those discussions and how much does that go through your mind when you're um, designing bunkers for a facility?
1: A lot. I know that it's one of the parts of the golf course that where a lot of maintenance is put in uh, are the bunkers. And it's something that, you know, a lot of golfers some days are not even in the bunkers or they're not in every square foot of the bunker. So there's parts of the bunkers that don't ever get any action at all as far as golf play. But it's really important. Uh, again, it goes back to the marrying the, the style with the budget and making sure that, that those two match. I've I, I actually been thinking a lot about bunkers, and in my mind, the, probably the easiest bunker to maintain if you had the, the technology or the resources dollar-wise to do it would be to build a bunker that had a flash bunker face um, not too steep, but a flash face that went up to the top or nearly to the top. But you would have to have a liner. And with that, you would have just a minimal amount of, of grass at the top of the face, kind of like what, you know, for example, what they did at Oakland Hills with the bunker renovation or the renovation of the south course there. You know, they're big flashes of sand with just a little eyebrow of grass at the top. And so in my mind, that's probably the the least expensive bunker to maintain because, you're assuming that the sand is going to stay in place. So you're not constantly raking sand up, and you have a minimum amount of grass to mow. You know, versus having a, a you know steep grass face you have to mow on a regular basis. So I, I think that's probably the the you know again if you can uh, if you have the resources to put in a bunker liner, it's probably the easiest bunker to maintain. The bunkers we're doing for the city of Dayton um, have a flat sand floor. But the grass space there that we're using is is soft enough where they can run a sidewinder or, or a rough type of mower over that face. So that was the objective of the superintendent and he's worked we work really closely together on every bunker to make sure that that bunker can be maintained that way because he doesn't have the resources to fly mow because they're literally out there mowing you know 435, 530 a.m in the dark because they have so much play and they have to get out ahead of everybody. So there was just no way that we were going to put in steep faces. So there's a lot of consideration for that. I and mean, again, I think it needs to be married with the type of facility, the budget, what the look is. Those are all great, great questions.
0: When I go around with superintendents, uh, they always talk about bunker faces, even more than the floor of the bunkers. It's a conversation that they even bring up to me on my story visits about, uh, growing turf atop, atop of them or, or pushing the sand up or if there's a fescue look, getting it to look right. Uh, what have you learned about bunker faces and what can be and can't be done with them? over the course of your career?
1: Uh, well, I, mean, I guess it just kind of goes back to what I was talking about a second ago. I guess I've learned that the, you know, the grass-faced bunker, albeit you're not pulling any sand, you know, sand isn't washing down. It's probably the most expensive, labor-intensive part, you know, of, of that style of bunker because you have to mow that, that face with a fly mow, essentially, and it's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time. So I think that, that's a part of it. The golf courses that we see that are being done by – Doak and and Crenshaw and Gil Hans, for the most part, they're dealing with a lot of sandy sites, natural sandy sites. So they have a lot of these kind of blowout bunkers that look like they're just kind of melding into the natural earth that's there in the natural soil. And so I think that's a pretty cool style, but, you know, it doesn't apply to every golf course. You're not going to do that on a clay clay site um, unless you're importing, you know, tons and tons of sand to make it look like it's a natural sandy site. You know that type of style of bunker is probably pretty easy to maintain because they don't you know they don't want them to be heavily edged and maintained and where they look all pristine they'd rather have them look kind of, uh irregular ratty more natural one of the things that i've seen over time that is a, in my mind a big killer of bunkers as far as quality of sand and the overall you know drainage playing conditions is bunkers to me should not have a hard soil edge i see this i was just down in florida uh, visited two golf courses that i did one when i was with arthur hills and one that i did earlier in my career when i started my own business and they have a hard soil edge on the bunkers and every time it rains that the silt from that hard soil natural edge is running down into the bunkers and contaminating the bunker sand and then eventually contaminating the uh the drainage and I understand why people do that because it's probably easier to edge that way. Um, some people like that hard that hard lip type of look, but it, it to me is like one of the worst things you could possibly do to the bunker because over time you're just ruining those bunkers. As far as maintenance of the bunker goes, to me, it should just be kind of a ratty, irregular edge that you take a weed whipper and, and control the runners, but you do not put a hard, hard edge on it at all because to me the sand should be right up flush to the grass And just left those two kind of marry together and whatever that look is, is what you get, you know, minus controlling the runners. But the the hard, the hard soil lip is to me a big no-no for, for day-to-day maintenance of a, of a bunker.
0: We've heard the term bunker reduction a lot over the last few years. What are some pros and cons of potentially going that route?
1: Yeah, good, good question. Like, you know, you could, for example, not every bunker has to be a bunker that's right at the lane area or a bunker that is going to impact your tee shot. We probably have all seen older golf courses where there's kind of more of a random bunkering philosophy, where there's a bunker that may be at the beginning of the fairway that's really just kind of a, a accent or an aesthetic that, and it may be like a directional type of bunker that you know is hit it over the top of this bunker for the best line, but it doesn't necessarily come into play where you're not hitting into that bunker. So one of the fears of bunker reduction is, is is taking away that that bunker, I guess, philosophy of that golf course. You know, if we start eliminating a bunch of bunkers that may not always, you know, get a lot of play, we may be changing the face of the golf course and the way that the architect intended, you know, for golfers to move throughout that golf hole. So that's that's one way where you can you know, reduce, you know, in a negative way in, in my mind. But then there's lots of golf courses, I think, that over time the bunkers get bigger and bigger because of the edging. You know, they continue to creep out. And so I think over time they do get larger. I've been working at the Country Club of Lansing, which is a Langford for course. who did a master plan that was just finished uh, right around Christmas time. And all the bunkers there are huge bunkers. They have way too many square footage of bunkers. And we're proposing to reduce, you know, most of them by, you know, a third half in size and, and kind of go back to that length for look. But there's just no way that there's no real good reason to have as many square footage or as many square foot of bunkers as we do there. Um, so that's a good example where we can reduce without taking away the intention or the look um, and really help the superintendent because he's just spending way too much time on a week-to-week basis maintaining those bunkers is because there's just... Too, too many square footage of it. Um, and then I guess the other part is philosophically, like what's the architect's philosophy? Because some architects like to have a ton of bunkers and uh, big bunkers and lots of sand. You know, some architects are more minimalist that, you know, fewer bunkers put the bunkers in the right spot. I kind of fall more into that that line of thinking where let's get the bunkers in the right spot. I was just counting the bunkers in this plan that I'm doing for another new golf course. And I think I counted 48 bunkers total, you know, some are big, some are small, but in in general, like most of the projects that I do are 50 to 60 bunkers, probably closer to 60. So I don't think you need a lot of the bunkers, you know, to make a great golf course. I think where they're located, the position is most important. Um, I, I think, you know, strategy and creating angles and risk and reward is a lot more interesting than having, you know, penal bunkers that are just kind of lining both sides of the fairway that you know any mishit shot is getting into. I'd rather have it set up where there's definitely a hard angle and an easy angle, um, and bunkers can effectively do that. But again, in my mind, you don't need a ton of them to you know, create a really good golf course and something that makes you you know think from hole to hole.
0: Yeah, and that leads right into my next question: How do the skills, or even maybe more importantly for most of the people that play the game, the lack of skills of modern players determine where you place bunkers?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I um, cause I'm I'm. Golf courses are during the season a lot because I watch people play and they're doing my work studying and I watch people play. And, um, you know, there's usually at most golf facilities there's just a handful of, like, really good golfers and everybody else is kind of – there's some average golfers. and But most people really struggle, you know, to, to, to move the ball from tee to green. So it, it, it's something to be really mindful of. You know, the depth is a huge part of that. You know, how deep is the bunker, uh, especially fairway bunkers. You know, we don't want to put somebody in a position where, you know, the only option to, at a fairway bunker is to hit sideways or backwards out of it. Some golf courses, that's what they are, uh, and that's fine. Like, every golf course has a different purpose. You know, not every golf course has to be something that's going to hold the U.S. Open or, you know, British Open or something like that. So the depth is really critical in, in the position of that bunker. Um, I try, like, for the depth-wise, the face, the – that you'd be looking at when you exit that bunker like the playing line that you're exiting that bunker i try to keep that portion of the face pretty low you can have like stronger deeper portions of the face that may be on the opposing side of like the the exit of the bunker as far as where you're trying to play from but you have to be really careful with the spot where people are hitting out of um and then the other part of bunkers is like i talked about a second ago is really position like where are they within the golf hole you know, if we can set up angles with bunkers that allow people to challenge that but then allow them to hit away from it, like, for example, if you had a dogleg left hole and you had a big bunker down the left-hand side but the right side was wide open, but the further right you hit it, the more that front right green side bunker was going to come into play, and that's kind of like basic bunkering strategy 101. You know, you got something protecting the left side. If you hit it too far right off the tee – there's going to be a bunker in front of the green that's going to kind of obscure the angle or, or not create the, the ideal angle. And so I think if you can give golfers options to hit away from the bunkers, I think that always helps, helps some too versus just having bunkers everywhere um, that become you know, very penal and, and onerous, I guess. Uh, the other part that I've learned, I guess, throughout my career is the placement of bunkers around greens. You're not trying to get wear patterns where circulation is. You know, people have to get back and forth to the, to the green from the cart path if we put a bunch of bunkers to block that it's going to really cause some circulation issues and some wear patterns that we get around the greens. So that's that's important too. But it's again it's being mindful of the the facility. You know again Blightfield for example is a, one of the higher end clubs in the Grand Rapids market. It hosts a LPGA event. Um so it, it, its needs are different than the city of Dayton. The city of Dayton is all about pushing 60,000 rounds through there. Uh, the golfers in general are not the greatest golfers, but they love golf. They love to be out there. So, you know, we have fewer bunkers at the city of Dayton. They're not that deep. Um, we actually converted a lot of the bunkers to grass hollows at, at the city of Dayton. I bet half of the bunkers that were there before are now grass hollows. Grass hollows still have to be maintained to be mowed, but they're a lot easier to play out of than, than bunkers are for some golfers. So that's another effective thing you can do is, you know, Convert some of these bunkers to grass hollows. You still have the strategic factor. You still have the visual contrast, you know, if that's steep face, but you just don't have the sand in the, in the bottom of it. And so, like I said, it goes back to all those things, you know, the, the type of course, the client, the, the budget, and then just being aware of golfers and the, and the golfers that are playing that facility or the, using that facility.
0: Last thing here in your mind, what can a well-executed, well-designed bunker renovation do for the well-being of a golf facility?
1: I've always said that the bunkers are kind of like the face of a golf course. I mean, the, the greens are probably more of the face, you know, per se, but the bunkers to me are, you know, they're, for, for, for starters, they're they're a contrast. You know, you have a color contrast. You're either going to have white sand or brown or some type of version of the two. So you have that contrast and color between that and the green grass, and that's pretty striking or you know, can be pretty striking. I mean, obviously, if we think of Augusta, you know, that's that's one of the things that's so beautiful about Augusta is that contrast or that white sand to that green, beautiful green grass. So I think bunkers can really change the, the aesthetic, the kind of the face of the golf course. I think bunkers can really change how a golf course is played. Um, it can really make it dynamic, especially if you really think through from one hole to the next and try to create different types of holes or different types of um, shots because of the bunkering, where the bunkers are placed. I think variety is really important, you know, that you don't have the same look and feel from one hole to the next with bunkering. We probably have all played golf courses that have bunker left and right of the land area, you know, where they kind of pinch, and that's more of a penal penal style. And then you also have the contrast of, of the face, you know, whether it's a sand face or a grass face. If it's a grass face, you know, you're going to have a big contrast because you're going to have that steeper steeper face, I guess, in the landscape. And That face is also going to create a shadow. That's going to be really interesting. It's going to have a cool layering kind of aesthetic to it. And if we put the faces in the right spots and the right sun angles, we get some really neat shadows that come off of those faces that you see at different times, which adds that extra layer of dimension that the golf course may not have had before. But to me, it's just really the aesthetic part of it. And um, it can really change, again, a golf course. Uh, and we probably have all played golf courses. The bunkers are in this horrible shape. You know, they need to be, you know, pumped out after rainstorms and they stay wet. And that's the other other advantage is just really improving the technology and improving the day-to-day maintenance of those bunkers and making it easier uh, for the facility to really be successful.
0: Well, Chris, this was another great conversation. Uh, congrats on everything you've achieved and congrats on all the work that you have going on. I know it's busy times for you and we really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. a lot, of, As always, a lot of fun and hopefully I've been able to kind of give some light on bunkering and the process we go through and you know what we as architects what we add to the to a project like that
0: as always chris delivers with some great information and conversation and now we'll move on to todd Quitno of Loman Quitno golf course architects and todd also is very knowledgeable about this subject and presents his thoughts in an entertaining way well todd it's great to have you on the tartan talks podcast again and i can't believe. It's been nearly four years since we had our last podcast recording with each other. What have you been up to besides making your ASGCA colleagues laugh since we last chatted with the record button on?
2: (laughs) Well, hello, Guy, and and thanks for having me on. Um, I agree with you. I can't believe it's been four years, but just these last few years have been so crazy that uh, it's, it's hard to even fathom how fast time's gone by. But um, no, we're we're um, we're doing well. It's been a it's been a crazy couple of years, as you can imagine. You know, uh, the golf industry has been COVID has had its huge impacts on play and participation, which obviously leads to revenue and people having money and resources. Like probably most other architects out there, we've seen a substantial uptick in our business uh, in the last, especially in the last year. Twenty twenty one was was pretty wild um you know we're talking to contractors now about projects a couple of years out next year um, you know they're full up for this year so anyone not with a project with a contractor yet is kind of kind of struggling right now so but just a few things like the work we've been doing we finished up a part 3 course in Madison we had a variety of work last year uh, but a part 3 13 hole course in Madison I was really really excited about that'll open in full this year a um, bunch of bunker renovations, which we'll talk about. And we've been doing a lot of work with greens, a lot of 18 hole. We did an 18 hole renovation last year, all 18 greens, doing some minor surgery here and there on other greens. But, you know, and, and really in the planning end of things, putting a bunch of master plans together and planning for the future. So that's kind of where we're at. That's where we've been for the last four years.
0: Well, in Madison, Wisconsin, Todd, there is a seven year old child whose goofy uncle bought him a set of golf clubs. A few years ago, what what should this child expect when his uncle comes to visit him this year and takes him to that par three golf course?
2: Well, I tell you what, there's two of them out there now. There's the Glenway one, too that the Kaiser family did, um, which I I, I want to get up and see. But Pioneer Point is the one I'm talking about, and it it is an interesting golf course. You're going to need a little bit of skill to play it, but it, it's kind of meant for all. Obviously, it's meant for all types of players. But what we did is is the, the developers, the Hain family, Kyle and Jeff Hain, they own another golf course there, Hawks Landing, and they bought this old golf course, Down Trails, and they they redid it uh, for housing. They're developers. And the, the way that uh, the long store, long and short of it is there wasn't enough room to put a, a full golf course or nine holes, so we said let's do a par three. And so this par three uh, is 13 holes, Jerry Kelly, is a brother-in-law of the owners and uncle of the owners, and he's his lucky number 13, so he was involved in it a bit. And um, we, we, we made all the, the golf holes based on either templates or some sort of inspiration of a famous hole. So you're going to see some pretty wild greens um, is a par 3. That's what we focused on. Um, the tees are kind of that new fad with ribbon tees where you sort of pick your spot where you want to play. But just a really dynamic, fun, um, not a lot of bunkers, um, but just a lot of contour and interest. And so I think when you bring your nephew out there, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I I look forward to hearing what you think.
0: I need some guidance. How should I explain to my nephew what a template hole is?
2: (laughs) So basically... uh,
0: I know what one is. How do you explain it to a child?
2: (laughs) Oh, gosh, because I don't think you worry about that. I want that. (laughs) You just say, hey have
0: fun here yeah. I
2: I, yeah I I don't have a good answer for that one. I can't explain it to my own kids when we golf, so um I, I don't know let me know when you figure that out though.
0: <laughs> okay on to the uh real topic of this conversation. A lot of facilities now are flushed with some cash that they maybe didn't have a few years ago, and they're looking to do some things to improve uh the golf course and Bunkers is a place uh where a lot of those facilities are thinking of turning to or turning to for their course improvements. Uh, Todd, when you get a call about a potential bunker project, where's the first place you start in creating a plan for a facility?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would say that whether it's bunkers or greens or anything on the golf course, our our process is always pretty much follows the same uh, steps. So, you know, the big thing is at the beginning is, is information gathering. So we'll visit the site with uh, the, the club or whoever it is. Um, and we just want to gather information right out of the gate. Um, hopefully the superintendent's there and involved uh, any kind of members that are included. But, you know, just simple things like what are the problems you're having with your bunkers now, if any? You know, more often than not, bunkers, when we get a call about bunkers, because they're underperforming, you know, they're not draining. They're contaminated. They cost a ton to clean up after storms, you know, that kind of thing. They haven't been touched in 20 years. So it's pretty rare when someone calls and just says, hey, we want new bunkers just because, even though our bunkers are great. So there's always a problem, and you got to understand the problem. We like to look at what's been done in the past, what's the history um, of the bunker work that's, that's been done, uh, good, bad, or otherwise. We'll start to look at positioning of bunkers as we go around, talk about the modern game, are the bunkers, in the right place for uh, today's players that hit it a frickin' mile. Um, you know, that relates to the tees as well. So we, we, we look kind of comprehensively at the golf course. You know, what what kind of strategic setup is there? Is there a shot interest, shot option? Um, and then we'll talk, you know, at the beginning about styles and, and any impact that, you know, there might be some historic reference or anything like that. So it's really just to get going, it's just a big information gathering and then you create a program out of that to kind of take you through the next steps as to where you want to go with it.
0: A lot of these course enhancement projects, uh, organizing them for their facility, ultimately falls on the, the, the golf course superintendent. What type of feedback and engagement do you like to see from a superintendent in the planning stages of a, of a bunker renovation?
2: Well, I think the superintendent's critical. As are you know, select members of, of the golf course uh, membership as well, but, you know, for me personally, feedback and collaboration in, the, in planning is critical. It's, it, I, I love the collaborative part of it. Um, you know, superintendents, first of all, they know all the everyday ins and outs and the dirty little secrets that occur on the golf course. They know where the problems are, where the money is being wasted, um, you know, what are the, what are the issues. But, but I also think that superintendents, especially these days, are very architecture savvy. Um, they – you know, following uh, social media and and online, all the stuff that you can get your hands on. They a lot of superintendents have a really good eye when it comes to um, architecture. When it comes to you know playability of the golf course, what they what they witness on a day to day basis. And so I think their input is critical. Um, They're going to be the ones too that are going to uh, you know influence how these get maintained down the road. So. That part of their input is critical to understand what, what their capacity is for that. And so, yeah, huge part of this, the planning stages is the superintendent. It's usually our starting point
0: for sure. You have the architect. You have the superintendent. You have perhaps an owner, general manager, a few select members. Who else is involved in that that team that uh, needs to be in place to successfully execute a bunker renovation?
2: Yeah, I mean, you kind of name it there. It, 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 small committees are best. More often than not with bunker work, we see, we work directly with the super. The GM, GMs tend to get involved on occasion, more, more on the money and the things. Um, I like to involve the pro. Uh, the, you know, the golf pro understands a better golfer, tends to understand the membership. Um, sometimes golf pros are pretty, can be single minded mm-hmm. in their own game. Um, but that's not a bad thing either. Certainly a, a, a representative or two from, the ownership or the, or the membership or whoever it might be or the city, whoever you're working with to give input on, you know, just the everyday man's uh, view on, on the bunkers. Mm-hmm. But you Neil, know, once you have a small committee, it helps to confirm what you're doing. You're going to need a committee of some sort to sell this to the membership. And again, bring that golfer member perspective. You know, and then when you start to get into the design and you have everything sort of ready to go and you go out and you get in your bid, you're going to bring on a, a, con, a qualified contractor. You might bring a shaper through them or you might have an independent shaper that you work with. Um, but I think a shaper is, is critical. Someone that relates to your vision uh, can even offer their own take on some of the things you're doing because, again, I, I stress the collaboration aspect of all of this work. The more people you can get good opinions from, the better. And then ultimately, you're going to have to put together a set-up-and-finish crew. And, and, you know, if you hire a contractor, that's inherent with that. But you might be doing some of this in-house. you got to understand if you can handle some things, save some money. You know, a lot of things that are done in-house is removing turf when you get started, removing sand from the existing bunkers, um, maybe coming in at the end of the project and putting the sand in or putting the turf down. But uh, you definitely want to have a, a qualified crew because it's, it's in the details at the end is where these projects are successful.
0: You get on site for day one of a bunker renovation, Todd, what what needs to be there to make it start effectively?
2: Well, the contractor needs
0: to <laughs> Yeah, the people. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever showed up uh, for one and the, the people that weren't there, has that ever happened to you?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I tell you, this last year was so crazy, and I think so many so many contractors were overspread uh, yeah. that a lot of them did show up a little later than they were expecting. But,
1: yeah.
2: you know, the big thing is with bunkers is, and, and I know one of your questions is how do you move through a bunker project to keep the course open? And a lot of clubs want to do that, and it's it's possible to do. It's a heck of a lot easier to do it if you can close nine at a time or whatever or a certain amount of holes. But the biggest thing coming out of the gate is you got to have your strategy, at least a strategy in place. You might not follow it all the way, but you got to know where you're going to start. And really it's not always hole one through 18. It's probably generally not. It's usually the efficiencies of moving around the site, kind of working your way from the toughest corner back out. And so how does that impact golf? Um, What holes are you starting on and what is your progression? We like to put get together with the contractor and have a map of that. Um, what can be open for the golfer? Um, uh, haul routes are such a big deal. You know, where are you, how are you getting material around the site? Those always seem to fall by the wayside a little bit. And then you're kind of dealing with them at the end, but if you can establish how you're getting through the site early and just walk through your game plan, um, I like to see contractors, if they can get on site a week early with their equipment. So everything's sort of staged and ready to go. If you have that luxury. But, you know, day one and even the first several days, is just its getting organized and, and it's like putting a game plan together, easing into it.
0: If you do have everything properly in place, how fast can a bunker project move? What's the pace like on one?
2: You know, they can move fast. Um, shaping is always very fast. Um, sometimes the finish work behind it uh, can take some time. Around here, Midwest, you know, if you're doing an 18-hole bunker project, I'd say they take anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks. And you're usually starting those after Labor Day. Ninety uh, percent of them occur in the late fall, um, obvious for obvious reasons. Well, in the past, play would slow down. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Uh, but the weather's good. The days are reasonably long, right? So, if you can get eight to twelve weeks in the fall with good weather, you can knock a an eighteen hole bunker project out fairly, fairly efficiently. When you're using liners and stuff, and especially with like a Billy bunker liner, when you're spraying a polymer. Uh, Some of that's a little weather dependent. So the later you get into the year, it's hard to get things dry so that you can do the spraying. So you got to think about that a little bit. So the earlier you can start, as always, the better because of the weather. But, again, if it's a Labor Day start, is feasible, you could easily be done by Thanksgiving.
0: Todd, it's the fall. One of your clients is doing a bunker renovation. You're on site for the day. What do you look for when you go on site in the middle of a project?
2: Well, primarily, I'm – I'm looking at the shaping, you know, looking at well how my vision is being interpreted, or the club's vision is being interpreted. Um, you know, I, a lot of what you deal with, what you see on existing courses is, you know, drainage patterns off of green, uh, maybe flow into the bunkers, the old bunkers, and that those were some of the problems they were having. So really trying to look at what the shaping, how the shaping is affected that, how we've made adjustments, how it's fitting into the site, how it how the balance and the visual look, uh, you know, works. Obviously, we're at some point we're painting edges uh, uh, or whatever artistic flair you're going to put into the bunker. We're just kind of walking through any logistic prob- logistical problems that the contractor may be having to try to solve those, whether it's drainage runs that need to be different or, or shifting of a bunker or, that didn't work from the original vision. But it's really a comprehensive look. Um, But but on my end, I'm trying to really get the the artistic quality to the project and uh, rely on the contractor to get more of the nuts and bolts put in
0: place properly. Yeah, now on to the design and the artistic part of the project. Uh, I know this question gets asked to you probably a lot. How do you uh, make a bunker architecturally interesting and maintenance-friendly, especially considering some of the labor challenges facing the golf industry right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge challenge, to be honest. I think bunker liners have helped a lot. You know, in a climate like ours, where where there's enough rain to be problematic, you know, in the past, you couldn't really, you didn't really want to flash your sand up because you would have erosion and and that caused contamination and all the problems, yada, yada. Um, With bunker liners, um, that's opened up to, for me anyway, an avenue of of a, a, a much greater potential style you can use. You can flash your edges up higher, quite a bit higher, and steeper and get a little more dramatic in, in some flare into your bunkers where it's appropriate, um, which will give you that architectural interest. And, and those liners are really effective in keeping the sand in place and, and, and limiting the amount of maintenance. Um, I personally think with bunkers, if you, you have to have something in your style some element that's visually dynamic or you're just, if you just plain Jane, your bunkers, I don't think you've achieved any kind of aesthetic improvement. Um, you know, so that can be done in a variety of ways. You know, we sort of pick one thing that you're going to sacrifice. So like at pioneer point, the par three course we're going to have, we have a very small, it's actually the, the maintenance crew from the other golf course is sort of managing this one as well. So small crew, we knew we weren't going to have a lot of labor for bunkers, uh, so we limited the amount of bunkers we put out there, but we also kept the, the shapes pretty simple, so the sand, we put liners in so the sand isn't moving, but we, we decided we were going to go with a steep grass face on the front because that was going to be our visual impact, and we were going to use uh, certain kind of grass and growth regulators and whatnot to try to keep that, uh, you know, not growing as much, but, but know that we were going to put some effort into those spaces because we wanted that architectural element. So. Um, you know whether it's a, a, a an edge that you kind of wave or give some character to or crumple, or it's uh, putting contour in the sand itself. I think you have to have something. I, I, I know you have to have something that gives some flair. Um, but yeah, like I said, with liners and the, the less handwork you can have in the bunker, the better for maintenance. So it's a it's a it's a balance.
0: What have you learned about bunker faces over the years, and what are some considerations the club needs to make? With those, I know you just mentioned some, but uh, a lot of the superintendents I go around and, and and talk to, they talk about the face of the bunker more than the actual floor of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, hmm. the face, the things we run into with the faces of bunkers is um, hmm. golfer complaints are probably the biggest thing. You, you got to be careful that you don't get bunker faces so steep that you know players can't get up into them. But the steeper you can make them in the sand. Uh, the ball, and, and if you have a, a good firm stand, um, the ball will hit that face and kind of roll to the bottom, and, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, bunker faces can be can stay soft. Uh, we tend to put four or so inches on the faces and, and five or six in the bottoms of the bunkers to try to keep that face um, pretty compact. We try not, we try to tell superintendents to not rough them up or, or rake them too often, so that they stay compact. Um, you know, there is a certain level of, of uh, slope that you can put into those spaces before, and it depends on the type of sand you're using, but before you get the slough off. So, you know, I like them to be steep because I like the ball to hit them and come off and come off into the bottom. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of methods guys are using to just keep them compact. And I think that's the biggest thing that balls, you got to make sure balls aren't getting caught up in there and people are trying to hit off those crazy. Faces and slopes but the other big thing is you got to keep water even with you put liners and good sand in your bunkers you got to keep water from going into the bunker from you know the outside so you got to look at your drainage patterns outside of the bunkers put the bunkers in places where they're not going to get you know direct drainage into them or adjust the, the contouring to uh, to push that that water around but that's really the key i think
0: todd we hear a lot about uh, facilities going from uh, X number bunker square footage to Y number bunker square footage. What do those numbers mean, and what are some advantages and maybe disadvantages of dramatically reducing the square footage of bunkers?
2: Well, I don't really see a disadvantage. Okay. Um, you know, there, I guess you can say aesthetics, um, but but that's in the that's in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think you can actually do a lot more with less, and that's I think that's something we've learned over the last decade, uh, plus when, when golf has kind of taken on this, let's, let's make it simple, more simple and more fun. Um, I just see a ton of advantages. What, what I do a lot of what we're into is, uh, the use of short grass in, around green, um, in this area, it's, you know, usually bent grass, but we've, we've been successful with low mow blues as well, but that's probably my favorite element uh, these days to use. Um, for a few reasons, you know, short grass, first of all, it, it kind of favors the high handicap player, the, the recreation golfer, where you have uh, a low cut area around a green that maybe sits below the green and you get uh, the average player into that area, they can putt out of it, right? They're not going to necessarily get the ball within a few feet, but they have a chance to get the ball on the green. Whereas when that's a sand bunker, that's kind of like their their scariest moment. They generally have trouble with sand. Now, on the other hand, when you put a slope and, and tight grass in front of you for a good player, and they're trying to get that ball close, and they have decisions to make now, they might putt, but they might want to nip a ball off that short grass. Um, but they have to control the spin. I think it, I think it's more challenging for them because um, they're so good at bunkers. So I, I think the the idea of taking bunker using less bunkers. Um, and using more short grass or other types of hazards. Um, we're going to, we're working on a project coming up where we're going to try to be as, as, few bunkers as possible, use some, some interesting mounds and interesting landforms in its place. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there's the bunkers, bunkers are the fun part of the game. They're kind of the bling, if you will, of golf architecture. And so, you know, there's not, I'm not suggesting you should get rid of them, but uh, you can certainly do more with less. Well, and here's the other thing that I we I was going to mention is that the, the value to that is that all that labor that you allocate to bunkers, because people expect perfect conditions, if you can reduce that labor and allocate it somewhere else, it just makes the rest of the golf course better. That's important, too.
0: Well, congrats, Todd. You're the first uh, guest on the Tartan Talks podcast to use the term bling.
2: <laughs> and I'm not a bling guy, so that's... <laughs>
0: I don't think many of us are that work in the golf industry.
2: (laughs) No, I'm sure. That dates me even saying it, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) How do the skills, or maybe more importantly, when you think about the average golfer, the lack of skills of modern players determine where where you place bunkers? Uh,
2: Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest. I struggle with this one a bit. Um, You know, everywhere you go, every club you're working with, you're usually working with the better golfers on the on the committee, the people who are the most vocal, and they're wanting to push bunkers back, right? Like get those bunkers long for the long hairs. I I I don't hit the ball far personally, so I don't understand that. I think it takes away some of the interest of the golf course if you push everything way down the fairway. Um, so I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that idea. Um, I like variety, so personally, I like to put bunkers in positions where any player can carry or navigate or have the fun of cutting or carrying over a bunker. Um, obviously with, you know, a huge part of that is T position. So any, any bunker project has to consider the T layout and getting T's in the right spot for the right players, getting the players to use the right T's. Um, but, uh, I just don't understand how far these people are hitting the ball these days. It's it's insane. And it's, it's very, you know, you're, you're dealing with a small percentage. And so I, I focus mostly on, on that main group of players and make sure it's interesting and fun. And they have a few fun carries, um, but that the golf course can be stretched enough to to challenge the better player. So again, it's no specific answer, um, but certainly modern equipment is playing a a big role in, in how we, how we, how we design golf
0: courses these days. Todd, how do you handle bunkers in front of greens? Do you feel like those are something that you're starting to remove in more and more of your projects and pos- position them on, on the sides of greens instead of forcing a carry?
2: Yeah, I think there's there's um, there's room for both. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that uh, a lot of uh, yeah, trying to open up avenues into the green is a big part of it, and, and that kind of goes hand-in-hand with the use of vent Um, like i was talking about if you can give players options to bounce the ball into a green it's just more interesting it's more fun i think you can have some positions sometimes i I actually like to isolate bunkers with fairway going around both sides it's something I, i do quite a bit where maybe you have to pick a right angle the correct angle to come in to a you know where depending on where the pin is but that bunker in the middle gives you a little bit of pause you just can't roll it up and you know, hit a hit a poor shot. So I think you got to have a little bit of balance there. Um, I find that a lot of the courses we work at, everything's right, left, right, left, right, left still. you know that's the bunker strategy that's employed. So the more you can vari- give variety to that, you know place bunkers on one side and maybe use short grass on the other or start to think of strategies, you know, I think being able to bounce the bu- I love I also love slope stick will kick a ball onto the green. So whether you give them an actual roll up in the front or you give them a way to come in from the side and use a, a mound or a feature to, 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 you know, bank a ball in, I, I like to, to utilize some of those kinds of features as well.
0: And last thing here, Todd, what can a successful bunker renovation do for the vibe of a club or public golf facility?
2: Well, I think it's I think it's huge. Um, I, I think you know bunkers. We know are the number one complaint. I think both the private clubs and and uh, public clubs. They also happen to be the most photographed, most talked about element of golf. You know, they they are the fun to me, the bling. As I said earlier, they're debated the most. You know, should they be hazards? Should they be perfect? So they're important. Um, people like them. People enjoy them. People hate them. Um, they're polarizing, but that's what makes them great. So, um, I think a bunker, a freshening up of a golf course with a really, uh savvy bunker program can do a heck of a lot for just interest in the club. You know, it can do a lot for the efficiency of the, of the maintenance, um, with proper construction. It can do a lot then where that, that labor can be reallocated and and have further improvements you know, I think the key to a good bunker program and, and is, uh, is following some restraint. Um, you know, I've kind of pushed less is more, like we talked about earlier, um, sound strategic decisions, uh, variety, um, using simple, elegant lines. Those are some of the things I talk about with bunkers, but it it ultimately to me, it equates to putting a fresh frame kind of around an old portrait. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that's exciting for people, and it just it breathes some new life into facility. So I, I think bunker programs can go a long way for a, for a club psyche.
0: Well, Todd, this was some awesome information. It was great to chat with you again. And I cannot wait to take my nephew to Pioneer Point, and I have a – uh, book of Alistair mckenzie's writings that i can fit in my golf bag and after we get off of each green i'm going to i'm going to give them some uh, golf course architecture history lessons
2: good luck, good luck with that and call me when you're up there cuz i'd love to join you and see how you how you handle this
0: <laughs> <laughs> well thanks and uh, congrats on the great work and and keep it going
2: yeah thank you guy appreciate you having me on